Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My patient today is Dan Adut. He's a comedian, an actor, a writer, and podcaster. His podcast is called Green Eggs and Dan, and he launched it around the same time I did. And we've known each other for a long time. We met each other in New York, as you'll hear in the podcast. Um, But you may have seen Dan on Cobra Kai, which starts up again on December 31st. And you'll see him soon on his very own Food Network show called Raid the Fridge, which premieres on December 28th at 10 p.m. In today's session, we talk all about the pressure of trying to eat at the best restaurants when traveling. If I have one bad meal, it's going to ruin like the next couple hours for me because it's like the opportunity cost of being in these great food cities to have messed up is so huge for me. Whether or not the men in his family cook. My dad, like when my mom is out of town and he's got to cook for himself, like he doesn't know, like he was making a pasta once and he just like boiled the water, put the pasta in and then put the sauce in the boiled water. And his thoughts on cultural appropriation. Like the thing that makes food in America so interesting right now and so great, and I think the best food in the world is in America right now, is because we have so many cultures that we can borrow from. So without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Dan Adut. All right, Dan, well, thanks for coming on Lunch Therapy. Thanks for having me. I mean, you know, you've been reaching out for me to be on this for so long. <laughs> and... I wanted you to come on. See, I have a, I have a stable of people that I know I, I would love to have on who I probably could get on because I'm friends with them. I feel comfortable with them. And like, you're definitely in that stable. I tend to go like if I go after a chef or somebody who I don't know, that's yeah. much more intimidating to me. So you've always been there and thank you and you know it was very kind of you to step up today because I did have a cancellation and it was nice of you no I feel the same way because on on my podcast it's the same thing my good friends when they come on they get all pissed at me they're like dude this you've been on for three years and you've never asked me I'm like yeah well we had a cancellation and I know yeah (laughs) I know my 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 dad my I've had my mom on and my dad is like why haven't you had me on and the answer is because I need him in case of emergencies. Exactly. So you've broken the glass in yes. case of the emergency, and here I am. But what's so funny, so first of all, I think we should tell our listeners or my listeners, but maybe they're your listeners too, that you and I have known each other for a long time in the most strange way possible, which is that we used to go to the same coffee shop in New York and we like met cute. Like we just sort of like started talking to each other at the coffee shop like 14 years ago. Yeah, we did have a meet cute. Um, you <laughs> had the amateur gourmet blog mm-hmm. at the time. Yes. And I remember like you did the, you did the, some, the, the Super Bowl cupcake, which like made, like <laughs> it, it went viral. It was like before yes. viral was the thing you went viral. I've tried to move, move away from that because I think it was potentially offensive, but it was a Janet Jackson breast cupcake. It was a and, different time and place. Yeah, it was a different time and place, but <laughs> that is honestly why I have, if, if I have a career, I'm not even sure, but if I do have one, it's probably because of that. Um, so yeah, so yeah, we met at Joe, the art was called Joe, the art of coffee. Now it's like an empire just called Joe. But at the time, it was like the tiniest little coffee shop. And it had like Amy Sedaris cupcakes. Speaking of cupcakes, like she would sell them there. Yeah. And I would see like, you know, Sam Shepard writing there. And I would see like John Cameron Mitchell, just like all these luminaries. But you, yeah. you and I would often be there. And so we were regulars. And I feel like we've lived parallel lives because you've you've pursued a career as a comedian who sort of has a sideway entree into the world of food and i've pursued a career as sort of a comedy writer who's had a sideways entree into the world of food and now we're both like doing food for a lot of our stuff yeah we've uh 
I think we've successfully flanked. We've flanked <laughs> the food world. Yeah. And they like didn't see us coming. And now. <laughs> yeah. I always believe when people are like, how do you have success at something? Not that I know, but I do think it's always good to approach something from the side rather than head on. It's like, I think it's harder to be like, I want to be a stand up comedian than if like you're like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this other thing. Like I'm a dentist, but I just do stand up on the side. Like that guy, Ken, what's his name? Dr. Ken. Right. Right. Like he was a doctor and he just sort of yeah. did comedy and then he became a huge comedian. What do you think of that theory? I think you're right. I mean, I, I remember reading in one of these like, you know, self-helpy books that like if you try to get successful at one thing, mm -hmm. your chances of like of wild success are very, very, very low. But mm -hmm. if you have two things that you're sort of good at, <laughs> then your chances get increased like a ton. Like I'm I'm not the funniest comedian in the world and I'm not like the biggest food nerd in the world. But I might be amongst the funnier comedians who's a food nerd. Yes, so totally. And I, yeah, I think Wendell, that, yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. And it's funny because even now, like with everything shifting away from like, I mean, I was I'm a dinosaur because I was a blogger, but like now it's like all on it was on Instagram. Now it's all on TikTok. And it's like when I even think about the idea of going on TikTok, I'm like, I don't yeah. even know like who I am anymore. <laughs> like, no, what am I? But it's but it's like to just do, have my little niche is very com comforting to me. So absolutely. I totally get that. So tell me a little bit before we get to the, your lunch. Um, you have a lot going on right now, right? You have um, you do, you're doing stand up, but are you mm -hmm. also doing a Food Network show? Yeah, um, I have a Food Network show that that premieres December 28th. Uh, Amazing. At 10 p.m. right after Chopped. It's OK, called, it's called Raid the Fridge. And it's sort of a, it's like a funny version of one of these food competition shows. Because mm -hmm. I've always thought the food competition shows take themselves way too seriously. Yeah. And so this is like approaching it, like what we're saying. It's like approaching, injecting the comedy into it. Um, and I think it's really fun. And I think people are going to really love it. And it's actually really, really great chefs cooking. So What's it like called? It's Raid the Fridge. Oh, Raid the Fridge. You just said that. Yeah. So it's, okay. a, you know, it's like four mystery fridges. They don't know what's in it. They open uh -huh. it and they have to, you know, make brunch in 20 minutes or whatever. Um, but uh, it's great. kind of like, it's like a bootleg Iron Chef. And is it like, because I feel like there's two categories of food competition shows now, which are like the kind soft ones, which is like the Great British Baking Show where everyone's like hugging each other and crying when they go home. And then there was like Alton Brown's show, which to me was like, almost sadistic where he would like take people's ingredients away and or like right. you know force them to freeze like where does your show fall in that spectrum i think that it's definitely it's 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 probably just shy of great british bake-off i think okay. i think the bake-off can feel like muzak a little bit uh -huh, sometimes sure, sometimes which people but, want now. i was just reading about TikTok accounts that people follow just because they're soothing and it's like kind yeah. and people just want to relax and that's how I feel when I watch it so yeah it's kind of like ASMR of food shows great yes totally so, this is less that it's more just like it's more fun it's positive it's definitely not like Gordon Ramsay-ish in any way mm -hmm. um and yeah I mean look it's it's new it's something different that the Food Network's doing because they don't normally like some of the episodes apparently have like a TVMA which is oh really Food Network <laughs> like it's very exciting that's awesome. Um, so yeah, they're taking a chance and we'll see. I mean, hopefully, uh, hopefully people, you know, are into it. Well, I'm so curious. I think we should jump into your lunch because I feel like you have a really interesting background um, in terms of food and how you got into it and your family. And like, I don't, I don't know that much about you, but just see the little windows that I see on your Instagram. I just have a lot of questions. So let's get into it. Dan, what did you have for lunch today? So for lunch today, I had ceviche. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
I have a cousin who's got a little booth at the farmer's market, and I went to go visit her. The, the Wait, which farmer's market? Uh, Melrose. Okay. Melrose. Yeah. And I was and I was texting you uh, about the show. And you're like, <laughs> make sure you get lunch. And I was like, girls, what do we get? What's what's the best thing for lunch in the farmer's market? And they were like, oh, the ceviche is crazy. So I went to the ceviche guy and got a sea bass ceviche and a shrimp ceviche, and he made his own tortilla chips as well, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it was really, really delicious. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, the way this works is as you describe your lunch, I'm listening for key phrases or words or like the way you approach talking about it to sort of get a window into your psychology. And to me, like the key moment was when you asked, what's the best thing at this farmer's market? Because it makes me wonder, like, is that a part, is that part of who you are? Like seeking out the best in the world, like looking for the best this or the best that? Yes, absolutely. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes uh-huh. it can lead to like paralysis by analysis. Uh huh. Sure. Um, yeah. And it's also like, I'm definitely not the person who goes to a restaurant and sa- ask the server, like, what's the best thing on the menu? Mm-hmm. Like, that's actually one of my restaurant pet peeves. Because I don't do that anymore because it's so socially awkward when you don't get that thing. You're like, uh, thanks for the rack. I'm not getting that. I feel awful. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Good for you. Oh, you like the sea bass? Great. I'm getting the steak. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I, get I, that. I, I also just feel like it's so subjective. Like, how do they know what I'm into? How do I know what they're into? Mm-hmm. And also, then I started to think of it as offensive to the chef that like, this like, you know, uh, out of work actor is suddenly <laughs> curating his menu, wow. uh, or her Harsh. menu. <laughs> that like they've like worked so so hard on to like yeah. you know to make this perfect menu and now this person who's been working there for a week is suddenly going to say do this not that I don't well, know, what's just... funny is like when my mom asks like what's good here because my mom often asks that at a restaurant i think there's this sense maybe you feel this way um on some level that there's like a secret thing like at the farmer's market today like that your that your cousin like knew yes. like what's the what's the inside track like what, what what do you know that i don't know that you can tell me about and i think that's when sometimes when people are asking like what's good here they want to know like what do we get that no one else knows about i should you know I, i'm i'm okay with what are you guys known for here that's i'm cool with that i think it's more like when i'm like hey i'm thinking either the duck or the lamb mm-hmm. and then they go oh just get the lamb it's like, right. no, give me the pluses and minuses of both. Yeah, that and makes a lot of sense. And let me make that decision. So are you, now, are you somebody, now I've noticed on your Instagram, you've been cooking a bit, but are you mo- mostly somebody who likes to eat out at restaurants or do you like to mostly eat at home? Um, that's a great question. If you asked me this pre-pandemic, I'd probably say I love going out, but I think mm-hmm. that I have been like one of the, uh, well, not even pre-pandemic, actually. I think after I turned 40, mm-hmm. I went from, like, I need to every night go to a different restaurant to mm-hmm. I have my three restaurants and I'm I'm just going to go to those places. Um, so, yeah, in general, I think if I go out, it's going to be the same couple places. Uh-huh. But um, What are they? Can I ask you or is that, is that giving away too much information? No, you can ask me. One of them is uh, one of them is Marvin. Um, okay, I think I've been there. I'm Melrose. Y- no, it's on Beverly. Okay, it's like I have a been bistro there. Yeah. on on Beverly. That's cute. Uh, one of them is there. One of them is going to make me sound like a total douchebag, but the Soho House. Oh my god, what a douchebag! I told you. I no, I'm hitting. It. I'm hitting the eject button on my podcast. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't think I'm allowed you. to call you a douchebag as your therapist, though. So I take it back. I retract. No, it's okay. Um, <laughs> and the other one is actually the other one is this restaurant called Nambankan. Are you familiar with it? 
Mm-mm. No. Okay, Namankan is a yakitori place in uh, just west of the 405 uh, okay. in LA. And it is a portal to Tokyo mm. in not just the taste of the food, even in just the mentality of the owner. I'm going to give you an example of something that happened that was so Japanese. So I just did an episode of that show, Best Thing I Ever Ate on Food Network. Oh, cool. Yeah. And one of the best things I've ever eaten is the um, chicken neck skewer at Namankan. Okay. They basically like take the meat off of a chicken neck and they put it on a skewer and uh-huh. it's just the most tender dark meat and it's just delectable. And so I was talking to the owner and I was like, hey, um, they asked me what the best thing I ever ate is and I want to talk about, uh, you know, I want to put your restaurant on prime time, give it advertising. Yeah. And he goes, please don't do that. <laughs> I was like, why? why? He's like, I want just the people who come here who just appreciate it already. I don't need any more customers. Just, it, wow. you know, I, I don't need people who are watching a TV show to come here. Like, it was such a Japanese thing of like, no, there's no honor in advertising. <laughs> Wait, so did you talk about it on the show ultimately? No, I didn't. <laughs> oh, you didn't? Okay. That's funny. No. That's really nice. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like such integrity in that. I mean, can you imagine like having a business and be like, I don't want more business. This is good. It's so funny. You just brought back a memory, which is right before the pandemic, Craig and I went to Japan and we'd never been before. Mm-hmm. And his film school roommate uh, lives in Tokyo. His name's Genjiro. And so the first night when we landed, we asked him to take us to a yakitori restaurant. And he took us to this really cool hole in the wall place. And the, and the chef asked us like, you know, do you eat everything? We're like, yep, we'll eat everything. And, you know, so they brought out, they did like, grilled chicken it was all chicken yes parts and it was like chicken you know necks like you just said and like you know like the thighs and just like everything was just very like delicious and but at the very end we saw that he was starting to build something like he was like he had these orbs um hmm. that were like they look like golden orbs hmm. and then like all these different things and then he basically strung them all together and held it up and he and Gendry was like this is called the lantern and I was like, okay. And it was testicles. It was like rooster testicles. And I think like chicken ovaries. Wow. Um, and, like all strung together in this like chandelier kind of thing. And it was insane. And I obviously. The chandelier you know, of genitalia. Yeah, of genitalia. <laughs> and I wanted to be a good sport because, you know, I don't want to be like the xenophobic American who's like terrified to eat the thing that I think of right. as weird that another culture doesn't think of as weird. But I put that ovary in my mouth and this is going to be gross. So, you know, if you get triggered, skip over this part. <laughs> but it tasted like biting into a water balloon filled with egg yolks. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Anyway, but we have to go back to you now. So, okay. So from your... From your lunches, okay, so I, I get it like a curatorial vibe with you. Like there's a curate, curation of, you have your three restaurants that these are your three, like you've curated them from all of LA's restaurants and you have, I'm sure you have your reasons for those being your three. Well, I also feel like a little bit of, of it is fear-based because I do mm-hmm. think that, especially when I go to New York now or when I've been in Tokyo, mm-hmm. like if I have one bad meal, it's going to ruin like the next couple hours for me because it's like the opportunity cost of being in these great food cities to have messed up is so huge for me. I'm going to Mexico City on Thursday for like a week. And I've just been like, you know, I have so much anxiety leading up to it. I'm exactly the same way. Yeah, 100%. And it sucks because I didn't used to be like that. I used to be like, I'll just walk down the street and look into a place. And if it looks cool, I'll go there. And now I think because there is so much data on restaurants, That it's just like, and I'm a, I'm like kind of a science nerd. Like, so 
it's a little bit of a bummer because it takes a lot of the uh, spontane- spontaneous like romance out of stumbling, you know, into a place. Well, this is a great subject for lunch therapy because it's it is sort of like a psychological thing to think of there being the best. Like, you know, I've been to Mexico City and we went to Pujol. Is that how you say it? Pujol. Pujol. I think yeah, pu- yeah, Pujol. Um, it's a hard J. It's a hard J. It's a hard J. Are you sure? Because I, somebody, um, I I just had um, what's his name? Oh my god, I'm blanking. But he pronounced it Pujol. Oh really? Okay. Oh, maybe yeah, I'm he did. Um, I don't know. Wait, is he was he Mexican? Yes. Okay, then he wins. I'm wrong. I'm I'm wrong. Then. But okay, that, I think that sense of like okay, so here's what happened to me. Um, recently, like the past couple of trips we took, we did over New Year's because we were both free. So we went to Paris like three years ago, like mm-hmm. over New Year's, and then we went to Tokyo and Kyoto over New Year's, and we mm-hmm. went to Mexico City over New Year's, and mm-hmm. all three all three trips, a lot of the most famous best of restaurants shut down, like they weren't oh, open over New no. Year's. So I had that feeling of, oh my God, like I'm, I'm missing, like, what's the point? Like, how could I go? But it ended up being great because we ended up finding these little hole in the walls, places people told me to go to. And, and I just think that concept of the best can limit you in a way that's, that's perhaps um, not damaging, but it's like, you're going to have, if you only go to the places that everyone says are the best, you're basically having the same experience as everybody else is having versus having your own experience. This in essence, Adam, is why I'm 43 and single. <laughs> there's, oh, there's, always really? some, there's always something better out there i mean <laughs> I'm, half it, jo- yeah. I'm half yeah. joking but it's definitely like again i think it's like the you know if we're gonna liken it to dating it's like you have these apps and you have mm-hmm. this illusion of choice where you think there's so many options out there yes. that something's got to be better you know mm-hmm. so it's very uh it, it's a hard time to just be happy with what you have hundred percent. I feel that way watching TV now. Like if I'm going to pick a show, it's like, I've got Netflix, I've got Hulu, I've got Disney plus, I've got HBO. And it's like, I'm going to watch this. And I'm like, Oh no, no, no. But I can, I can go on HBO max and get something better. Like, it's like, there's that feeling constantly right. of scrolling and swiping. And so and I what's totally the rotten tomatoes on it. And yeah. You know, and it's, yeah. it's funny. I remember somebody, a friend went to India once. Um, I don't know where they went in India, but they talked about going to a grocery store where there was like one shampoo, like one soap and like one toothpaste and there was no choices. And I was like, Oh, that actually sounds very comforting. Um, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of, I mean, past my parents' generation and my family, everyone had an arranged marriage Mm -hmm. and my grandparents, my great grandparents who had like a serious arranged marriage, we're madly in love. Mm, yeah, because it somebody <laughs> made the choice for them. It's like you don't even have to make a choice. You just make it work. You make it work. I guess. What's your um, What's your family's background? Are, you're Jewish, though, right? Yes, Iranian Jewish, though. Iranian Jewish. So yeah. the arranged marriage was like a Jewish Iranian Jewish arranged. Yeah, marriage. they they basically took to the local, you know, the local culture of Iran, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, we're talking like grandparents, get, great grandparents getting married off when they were like 12, 13. Like, oh my god you're hearing about in afghanistan that's like yeah that's why you're here so you know good yeah. thing that, that it happened but so does your family try to set you up with with people to date oh yeah of course of course i mean you know it's an interesting thing because they moved to america which is like the land of individual freedom and mm-hmm. they're come from a culture where it's like no your family basically dictates everything uh-huh. so it is it is a it is a clash of cultures that you'll be able to read in my book under oh, yeah. coming out uh, fall of 2022. Fall 2022. Undercooked. Yeah. Um, Undercooked. So, so Persian Jewish culture. So what were the foods you grew up with? Like, was there a lot of cooking at home? And where did you grow yes. up, by the way? I grew up in Great Neck, Long Island. 
I grew up in Oceanside, Long Island. Oh, really? Yeah, that's so funny. And then I moved to Florida when I was 11. Yeah, I grew up with uh, with home-cooked meals every night, Persian food, which is mm. one of the more misunderstood cuisines, I think, in the world, or not in the world, in the U.S. Um, but uh, the best way, if you, if you never had Persian food, you probably think it's like Arabic food, but it's nothing like that. It's more like Indian food, but substitute mm-hmm. herbs for spices. Hmm. That's the way that I kind of describe it. Um, is that, um, are there any cookbooks that you like that have Persian food? Yes. The best one is this book. It's called New Food of Life by Bajmia Batmangale. And okay. she's like the, she's like the Martha Stewart of Persian cooking. Okay. Um, like old school. Not, uh, I should say Ina Garden. She's like, no, oh. Julia Childs. No, although okay. Julia Childs was a foreigner cooking French food. Who would she be? I mean, she... She's like the grand dame of, of Persian cooking. Wait, say her name again. Bajmia Bat, okay. Batmanghale or something like that. Okay, got but it. But the book is awesome. Like, it's like my mom poo-poos on every, like, you know, any, like, modern interpretation of Persian food. Like, she hates mm-hmm. it, and she loves this cookbook. So so you grew up in Great Neck with this Persian Jewish family, and were there other Persian Jewish families around you in Great Neck? Oh, yeah. Great Neck is like a hotbed of Iranian Jewry. Okay, um, got it. So they, you didn't feel like an outcast growing up. Did not feel like an outcast. No, I felt like an outcast after I left Great Neck. Um, <laughs> but food-wise, uh, it's interesting because there are Persian Jewish uh, foods as well mm-hmm. that are not just, you know, so, you know, the a lot of the dishes in, in Persian food are, you know, Muslim-centric and there's butter mixed with meat, which mm-hmm. the Jews wouldn't do that. So a lot of it is ol- olive oil-based rather than butter, which... To me, it doesn't make it any any better or worse. It's just different, yeah. right? It just has like a more savory flavor to it, which is cool. Um, but then there's like other things like gondi, which is sort of like a Persian matzo ball, which is like, huh. it's like a ball made out of chickpea flour and uh, ground veal and uh, turmeric and saffron. And it's like cooked in a chicken broth. Wow, and that sounds delicious. It's amazing. It's are amazing. there Are there any Persian restaurants you like in L.A.? Or Iranian restaurants? Um, yeah, actually, there's a place called Atari. Oh yeah, like, I, I've heard of it. I've never been. Yeah, Atari is pretty pretty good. I mean, the problem is there isn't really any Persian restaurant doing real Persian food. A lot of them do kebab stuff. It's like very kebab centric, yeah. which is like again, it's like imagine Japanese food is just sushi. Right. Like it's such a right. small subset, and there's so much other stuff. Um, but I guess that's like the most accessible. So you get a lot of kebab restaurants and then their stews and stuff are just kind of afterthoughts, which is a bummer because those to right. me are like the best things. So, it's, so it's, what were the ingredients that like you grew up with in your house? Like what, what, if you opened the refridge, if you opened the refrigerator as a kid, like what would you see in there? Well, the funny thing is we grew up with turmeric everywhere in everything huh. before it became like hip and everyone yeah. was like, have you heard of this turmeric thing? It's good for inflammation. I was like, I was breastfed turmeric milk. <laughs> um so yeah turmeric is like turmeric is the base of almost every persian stew Mm -hmm. like instead of a there's there's no stock there's never beef broth there's never chicken broth it's basically just onions mixed with turmeric is the base of everything really yeah that's like the mirepoix that's the you know um (laughs) that is the uh what is it what is it called in spanish cooking oh sofrito yeah that's the sofrito yeah um it's uh, that's it. It's just like onions and turmeric are the base for almost everything. Maybe that's why you're so youthful and healthy because yeah. you're eating turmeric your whole life. Yeah, probably. I I guess. 
So is, is there that like or, or all the plastic surgery, but oh, yeah, that's either, true. Yeah. yeah, you guys can't see him, but he's like literally got filled with fillers right now. Yeah, his lips so are really product. puffed out. Um, so is um is there like a dish that's like the iconic dish of your childhood? Like if you were on your deathbed and you could have one meal from your childhood, is there something you'd want? Yeah. Um. So the national what what is the closest thing to a national Persian dish is something called hormisabzi, which is a stew over rice, and the stew is it's a um it's basically more herbs than you thought you could fit in water like mm -hmm. physics wise so it's <laughs> so much dill and parsley and cilantro and um fenugreek which is a really interesting mm -hmm. herb which is super duper pungent like it just mm -hmm. like goes into your in, into your pores um and then you've only raise... seen it dried is there like a fresh fenugreek there is fresh fenugreek, but I th but the dry one is it's it's almost like oregano, where like the okay. dry isn't necessarily worse than the fresh. Like it just offers right. a different, you know. Um, but the uh, then you stew your meat in it, and in Iran it's with lamb. Uh, America, it's funny like how you just take to the local cuisine. Like everything is is beef, like a lot of stewed beef. Mm -hmm. But and then you put that over rice and tadig, which is mm -hmm. um, which is like a, a crispy rice at the bottom of the pot when you're making rice. Oh yeah, uh, I feel like, like Samin Nostrat like opened that up to the world because oh, yeah. like after her show, everybody was making it on Instagram and TikTok it's, and stuff. It's so good. It's like really hard to explain, like, because you just say crispy rice and you're like, yeah, I get it, but it's different. It's like the rice at the bottom of the pot is like slowly poaching in like mm -hmm. an inch of like butter or oil. And it's like you get like one inch thick of crisp mm. that is just like... Uh, it, and it, it cooks evenly throughout. It's almost like a sous vide frying. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I've got to try it. I, I mean, this guy, Jake Cohn, who I'm friends with, who's been on this podcast, does it all the time. And he like always makes a dramatic like presentation yeah. of like flipping it upside down. But I'm too nervous. I feel like I'm going to burn it. Oh, it's so good. Um, yeah. And I have this friend that she's like a Tadig artist. Like you can, oh, wow. you can follow her, her, uh, her Instagram. Uh, hold on. I should, I should know this. Um, Oh, it's Varta Melon, V-A-R-T-A okay. Melon. And she makes Tadig art like you've never seen. Really? Uh, yeah, it's unbelievable. Like, uh, she'll make it look like a basket. Like, she'll weave, like, you know, uh. tortilla strips to make a basket. I mean, it's wild. But, um, yeah, I think Tadig with some of that stew. Oh, the other secret ingredient in that stew that's awesome is something called Limu Omani, which is translated means um, limes from Oman. Mm. And basically, they take limes and they dry them mm -hmm. so much until they, it looks like a black piece of coal. I've seen them. Yeah, Persian dried limes. I've, yeah. I, think, I think Burlap and Barrel sells the powder of, yes. out of that. Yeah. They powder them. And you put, that, you put that in a stew that's braising. You put that in a braise. And mm -hmm. it adds such an earthy, pungent like acid to to the dish that you could never get from fresh lemon or fresh lime mm -hmm. and it's so awesome yeah i like it when i added it to stuff so you grew up in, in this food culture was it was it um both your parents who cooked or did one parent cook more than the no other? old school old school persian man the men yeah the men don't go to the kitchen yeah yeah so, so your <laughs> mom cards cooks. they play cards with their buddies as the as the women cook in the kitchen but were you more interested in food than like other males in your home like were you like spending more time in the kitchen or oh absolutely yeah absolutely was, loved... was that encouraged as you were a kid yeah my mom was very cool with me with with me liking cooking uh -huh. um 
and uh, she kind of fostered it and was into it. And, and yeah, I mean, look, it's like the thing, it's funny. Cause like, yes, none of the men know how to cook. None of them know anything about cooking. Like my dad, like when my mom is out of town and he's got to cook for himself, like he doesn't know, like he was making a pasta once and he just like <laughs> boiled the water put the pasta in and then put the sauce in <laughs> so like has that's no hilarious no that's base really concept of cooking whatsoever that's really um, funny so the men persian men in general even my generation even younger generation they just yeah. do not know anything about cooking um, so in terms of like your like journey to this moment you're at now where you're hosting a food network show you've got a, a memoir coming out um what how did like the comedy emerge and then like when did the food re-enter the picture like was it was it like comedy first and then food again or was food always there in terms of your profession i mean i think that it was i think the comedy was an obvious first profession you know i moved to new york in like the early 2000s to do stand-up and that was you were living in new york at the same time and looking back on it, we were in a really interesting place at an interesting time. That was mm -hmm. a real food renaissance happening yeah. in the U.S. And it was the epicenter of it was fucking downtown Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And that's where we were living, you know. So, like, I would do open mics and stuff or, you know, and I had my day job. And then at night, go to, like, these crazy, like, WD-50. I don't know. If, mm -hmm. Not WD-50. Yeah. No, um, do you remember... Um, his the restaurant before that that he had Clinton Clinton Fresh Food. Oh yeah, I never went there, but I went to WD fifty and had the fried mayonnaise and the whatever that was, yeah, the eggs like, Benedict deconstructed and all that stuff. All that wild stuff and like you know I know hashtag too soon, but like all of Batali's restaurant. Oh yeah, Rabo was like. I was just thinking that because the coffee shop where we used to see each other was right across the street from Babo, and I remember walking past there. I was like a little like street urchin like looking in the window like oh yeah. my god like i want to eat there tonight and then yeah. finally i did and it was amazing it's amazing and then there was like you know like the spotted pig which you know like i worked at the spotted i was like stodging at the spotted pig over oh, the yeah. once and i wrote an article in your in your well that was so funny i should just clarify this is just funny actually because you, you wrote me recently you're like I want, I want to put this in my book but i forgot that you wrote something on my blog about the spotted pig so i thought you were saying you were like can you take down your spotted pig post so i can put it in the book or i can, I can include some of that stuff and i thought you were saying like adam can you take down a post that you wrote about the spotted pig so i can write it and i was like what is he talking about and now it makes so much more sense you were like this guy is so brazen with this plagiarism <laughs> yeah i was like what is he saying and then i was like oh he wrote on my blog a post about the spotted pig and now i totally get it and i apologize no no not at all but anyway it was like I felt like I had these two parallel lives going on at the same time where I became so embroiled in the food world. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you remember, remember Tommy, Thomas Carter, like I was buddies yeah. with him. He came to the coffee shop and then I ended up investing in Estella. Um, mm. And it was like, I don't know, like I had these two worlds and like I kind of kept them separate. And, you know, because co comedians like to poo-poo on fancy food and like, yeah. you know, the food world can be a little snooty and, it was like I kept them separate until I was just like, let's just see what happens. And I started writing bits about food and, and mm -hmm. I started to, um, do, you know, do my podcast about food, like just kind of mixing comedy and food together. And it just like it's 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 so cliche, but it's like when you're finally yourself, <laughs> that's when people take notice. And it's like it started, um, you know, people took notice and, it, and, it, and it's I, I, I just kind of leaned into it once I saw like, oh, OK, cool. This is this is working. Well, I'm curious. So the stand up of it all, I mean, coming from my family and it, my Jewish family, like I've always lived in terror of like 
talking about like my mom and like my writing it's like you know just like what, what's she gonna say what's she gonna think and it feels like stand-up is like real you, you put yourself out there in a way and I'm curious like how did your family react when you first started doing it and did you talk about them in your act and did, it, did they come see you and how did that all go down I mean look I went to Johns Hopkins I I got into medical school and mm -hmm. then I decided to become a comedian and my parents immigrants from another country could not have been more supportive oh that's so nice i'm absolutely lying they were mortified <laughs> oh my God, like what they i went to mortified. law school i mean i did three years of law school and got a law degree because i was so terrified of my jewish parents so uh and they're not even first generation immigrants they're like second and third generation so wow right. okay got it no, so you they got were into mortified. medical school yeah. You did organic chemistry, biology, physics. Uh, I, did, I took the MCATs. I did everything. I did all that. I didn't do the MCATs, but then I did LSATs because I was like, all right, I can do law school. It's pretty, it's a little easier. Yeah. No, it's they were, true. they were mortified. They were not happy. And I mean, to their credit, like I can totally see where they were coming from. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, no, I didn't have a lot of family support, at least from my parents when I started out. But I'm also one of those, like I have, if we're going to get back into therapy, yeah. Uh, when someone tells me I can't do something, I'm going to do it. But so, the comedy, stand-up comedy, though, I mean, like, that's, there's so many layers to it to me, because it's like, you, not only do you have to get over the courage of, like, disappointing your parents, but then you have to get over the fear of, like, literally going up on a stage and trying to be funny and make people laugh. And I guess, I'm curious, like, where did that confidence come from? And, like, were you always, like, the class clown? Did you always put yourself out there in that way? Yeah, I guess I was always kind of class clowny. And then I did like improv troupe in college right. and in high school as well, actually. So I like to uh -huh. perform. I like to get a laugh. Um, I mean, doing stand up in New York, uh, you know, is different. Obviously, like open mics are brutal and it's awful. Mm -hmm. And you have to bark, which is like when you hand out flyers on the street to yeah. get like stage time at like. I'm sure I walked morning. right past you when you were doing that. <laughs> Everyone did. Don't worry about yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah. So um, you, you did you start on Long Island though, like Rosie O'Donnell and all the Long Island comedians who no, did no, I, Long Island comedy clubs. I didn't do the Long Island circuit. I did. Uh, I started out in New York. I was doing like downtown, like the Boston Comedy Club was a uh -huh. place that was open then, and like uh, um, I started running my own comedy show at a place called Kenny's Castaway, which was like uh -huh. a dive bar in in the village back then. So what was your first night going up and like, what was your routine and how did it go? Uh, the first night I ever went up was in Baltimore, actually, where I went to college and it was at some weird variety show and I was, and some guy went on before me and did like a, first there was a musician and then it was a guy who did like a one man show about like his mom who was like, a prostitute and would like and it was like what? very like yeah and it was like very like beat poetry like yeah like i, I you know i don't want to i don't want to get too gross for your audience but it was like very detailed weird beat poetry about the stuff that his mom would do while he was okay. in the other room growing I'll up i'll ask you afterwards yeah. it was just so disturbing <laughs> and he went on way longer than he should have he went oh, for like no. a half hour and everyone was supposed to do like five minutes and then it was like okay now it's time for this comedian dan oh god <laughs> Um, I went up and I, you know, I brought a bunch of friends from college and it, it went okay. It wasn't awful. Um, but I definitely got booed off the stage a couple of times in the beginning. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, like in, in, to bring it back to food for a second, like to me, there's a parallel between cooking and food and eating and comedy in the sense that there's like the, the stuff that you do for yourself as a creative person, like 
I'm sure as a comedian, like the stuff that you find funny that you're not sure an audience would find funny. And, uh, and I'm sure in the kitchen, there's things that you like to eat that if you have people coming over, like, yeah. you're not sure, necessarily sure you're going to serve them. So I'm curious, like, are, do you see parallels in like how you think of your comedy and how you think about food? Um, that's interesting. I never thought of it like that. I mean, I've thought of it in terms of like, you know, you've got like chefs, chefs, like uh -huh. chefs that like, you know, like Gabrielle Hamilton, that like other mm -hmm. chefs want to go eat at their places. And you have comics, comics, like, right. you know, like, like, um, uh, Dave Attell is a big one that like every uh -huh. comedian's favorite comedian, but like a lot of civilians have never heard of him. Right. Right. Um, so you know, and also it's like in terms of like material, like you've got to keep writing new material to keep it fresh. And sometimes you're going to have hits and sometimes you're going to have misses. And like mm -hmm. my favorite restaurants are the ones where you can tell the chef is taking chances and mm -hmm. it's not all going to be hits. There's going to be duds, but at least it's like, oh, cool. I'm, I feel like I'm trying something different and something new. And it also feels like both cultures have like a fraternity or sorority of, you know, the people who are in those fields are really closely knit because it's so brutal. It's like being a comedian right. is such a brutal thing and being a chef is such a brutal thing. So I imagine like you have a lot of friends that you've met on the road or like behind the scenes or whatever it's called like in the yeah. green room of shows. And you probably all feel close in a way that like the average person wouldn't understand. I would right. Think. Like it definitely feels like you're in a fraternity. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because it's such an interesting fraternity because like I have buddies who went to jail and I have buddies who went to Harvard law school right and we all hang out together and it's literally like the great equalizer because we've all been to war together kind of mm -hmm. and I'm sure it's the same exact way for chefs well I'm going to keep asking about comedy just because I'm curious but we'll get back to food in a second but I, yeah I, sure I, but having started in New York back when we met each other in the early 2000s and now being at this cultural moment where things are shifting so much and you know people are more sensitive and there's more awareness about diversity and in just cultural issues in general like I'm curious how do you feel like comedy has changed over the past 20 years um I think it's changed a lot honestly and I I, I don't think it's for the better I, I less about the cultural stuff more about the kind of I guess it's part of the same thing but like the the cell phoniness of it all and being able to record people mm -hmm. comedy is a really messy business and to finally get a joke to where it is at the end mm -hmm. like you you need to toe the line right and to toe right. the line you got to cross the line sometimes and see what's too far and then you got to bring mm -hmm. it back and so if you can't do that freely in like an environment that's like not gonna like put you on blast and you know just mm -hmm. post all your stuff you're gonna self-censor right because you're kind of nervous about that I, mean, I think chris rock even said he's like i could have never done my first special in this in this climate because there was so much to work out for that set, I said a lot of stuff that was just like blatantly racist, and I and then like I pulled it back. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 harder it's harder to, you know, find where the line is if you mm -hmm. if you're scared to to cross it. If crossing yeah. it can be like career you know suicide. Absolutely, and you know it's so funny. It's like sometimes you can stumble into something where you had no idea that you were being offensive. Like I I I you know on my Twitter like I'll every every so often like tweet something that I think is funny. And like I tweeted like a couple of weeks ago, I wrote like bay leaves, not worth it. Mm -hmm. So I was just like annoyed because I was like making a soup and I didn't have the bay leaves. And I was like, it's not worth it. Like who cares? Right. Like, you don't need a bay leaf. I and could co-sign like, that. Yeah. And then people were like, haha, like they're actually worth it. They have like 
you know, like people at first were just like, you know, check it out. Like, you may, or like bay leaves that give like a woodsy flavor. I was like, okay, okay. And then, but then somebody retweeted it and I was like, wow, like white people again, like dismissing our culture. And, and then that picked up steam. And I was like, oh my God, like, what have I done? So I deleted the tweet, but it's just like, if I experienced that as a non-comedian on Twitter, I can't imagine what it's like to actually be a comedian and go up on a stage and just gamble. Yeah. I mean, look, it's funny because I do talk lately. I've been open about talking about the whole concept of, of like cultural appropriation when it comes to food. Yeah. This whole thing of like white people aren't allowed to, again, I guess as a Brown person, I feel like it's my responsibility to say it because I, I can't get canceled for this. Yes, sure. Say it. But like, yeah, I just think like the history of food is the history of cultural appropriation. Like every, like the thing that makes food in America so interesting right now and so great. And I think the best food in the world is in America right now is because we have so many cultures that we can borrow from. And guess what? Other cultures have borrowed from other cultures in way more fucked up ways. Like the only reason you have paella in Spain is because the Moors invaded and occupied for 800 years and they brought rice and saffron. Mm-hmm. So like that wasn't a tender cultural appropriation. You know <laughs> right, what I mean? right. Yeah, so, it like, makes a lot of sense. And everything at one point was culturally appropriated. Churros came are Chinese. Al pastor is Lebanese. Like I mean, it's like if we're gonna play this game, then no one's gonna be able to make anything. And I and I, honestly like I don't give a fuck what I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this, but I don't. You are, I don't yeah. care. No I don't rules. care what. <laughs> I really don't care what color you are or what culture you are. If you can make a version of Persian food that uh-huh. is awesome, have at it. Like, I agree. I mean, I think I think where it gets tricky, and I think what the only time like when people get called out, where I'm like, okay, that makes sense, is if somebody's like claiming to like like a white person is claiming like here's the best like pad thai you're ever gonna have, or like right. it's like a white chef sort of like putting their mark. But I think that's also a slippery slope because. Who knows? You know, it's like to your point. Like, what if it's a Spanish chef doing their spin on pad thai, or it's just right? Well, this is the thing. It's like, and and again, like you, the thing with the bay leaves. Like, wow, this white person doesn't like bay leaves. Like, guess what? Chinese people think that stinky cheese is disgusting. Yeah. Are they being culturally uh, like offensive to the French? No, Mm -hmm. I think that they just. It's like they can have stinky tofu and feel fine about it, but it's just like. Every culture has their thing. I'm sure if my parents had stinky tofu, they'd be like, this is disgusting. I never want to have this again. Does that make them racist? I don't think so. Well, it's also interesting to, to draw this parallel between comedy and food because as we talk about all this stuff, it just makes me think of the unconscious mind. It also like applies to like this podcast theme, which is just like, it feels like with comedy and with like talking about how we feel about food, there, there used to be a safety and just like sort of doing a brain dump and just sort of like opening up your brain and just like putting it all out there and like showing yourself warts and all. I mean, I'm a big fan of Philip Roth's novels and it's mm-hmm. like, I'll read, I'll read one. And it's like, Oh my God, like how did he put this in a book? It's the most disgusting foul thing I've ever read in my entire <laughs> life. But it's also like, okay, like, but this is part of the human condition. This is like how this man's brain was working. And like, I'm, I'm grateful that I got some insight into it because it's like, Whoa, I don't think that way, but um, but I, I'm sure there's parts of me that people would find loathsome and disgusting. It's like, but like, but the, but the acknowledgement is that we're all part of this human condition and we're all human. And like, even if it's offensive that I don't like, I don't think bay leaves are important. It's like, well, I'm sharing that with you because I'm just like, I'm opening myself up in that, in that way. And it's like, if you want to like bat something back to me, like, that's fine. But like, I think people get so there's like, a, I guess there's like a new cachet in like totally just canceling people and just like being like, you're done, you know? 
Well, it puts them on a pedestal, right? There is yeah. like virtue signaling, like look at look at me. I I can see why this guy is is morally repugnant, and right. because I'm not morally repugnant, and it's like it's so cheap and so easy. And again, just yeah. to tie it back to comedy, I think the reason that I feel that way is because stand up comedy is like, in my opinion, like it is such a it's the most in some ways it's the most judgmental form of mm-hmm. of art where people watch it and they're judging but in mm-hmm. a lot of ways it's the least it's the least judgmental because when you're at a comedy club and someone goes on stage and whether they're black or they're gay or they're trans or they're asian or they no one gives a fuck if they make you laugh you're going to laugh like right. it doesn't matter like no one is like oh i'm not going to laugh at this guy because he's persian like mm-hmm. no you're going to laugh if it's funny and you won't laugh if it's not funny and that's why for me, it's like, I, if the food is delicious, I don't care what color the person is who made it for me. Like, I couldn't give a fuck. Yeah. Like, if you're, cooking, if you're cooking amazing food, then awesome. Like, that's the game here is, is deliciousness, not like you're 23 and me. That makes me think of Puck Puck in New York. Did you ever go there? Yes. And that was Andy Ricker's restaurant. And he's white, but traveled yeah. a bunch through Thailand. And I don't know, I don't know if he was ever actually like, you know, called out, quote unquote, for being a white chef making Thai food. But sadly, like that restaurant is gone, like it's over. And I wonder if like he felt the cultural shift and ended it or if it had something else to do with why he closed it. But um, but, yeah. but that makes me think of that, that like the food at Pak Pak was undeniably delicious. Yeah. But, but you could put it under a microscope and have, I'm sure there'd be all kinds of dissertations about what's wrong with it. You know? I mean, if anything, it's funny because I'm, I'm both envious of, and I have my issues with David Chang. Like mm-hmm. the good thing that he did is he kind of put Korean food on the map, right? Like no mm-hmm. one really was, it didn't have the amount of notoriety that it has now until he mm-hmm. came. But the, I, but the flip side is the only reason in a lot of ways that he could do that is because he kind of dumbed it down. He made it palatable to like white people and he charged mm-hmm. like triple <laughs> for like what you could get at a Korean restaurant in Cape right, Town yeah. for, you know? So like, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, this banh mi thing is amazing. It's like, yeah, well, you can get it literally for, a, you know, <laughs> a dollar down the street from, you know, the other joint. I don't know. So like, you know, that to me is more offensive in, in some ways than, you know, uh, than what Andy was doing, which was, he was, he was doing hyper authentic Thai food, you know? He was doing like night market style stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Dan, I feel like we're uh, we're shifting away from your sorry. therapy session. <laughs> but this, is a good, this is actually a really good conversation. I think I feel like it's like so relevant. I mean, I, I mean, to bring it back to you, I mean, do you feel when you're on stage, like, because you talked about being your true self, like earlier when you were talking about telling your parents you wanted to be a comedian. Mm-hmm. So, are, are do you feel like your your most true self when you're on stage and talking as a comedian, or do you feel like there's still a presentation that's going on? No, I feel like my true self now. But again, I've been doing it for 23 years. And it took a while to get to that. Because again, like, especially in the beginning, like it was, so I, for example, just dumb things. Like I like dressing nicely. Like I like, Mm -hmm. I like, I I like wearing. He says that's like wearing a a a t-shirt. Yeah, I know right now. (laughs) I'm totally wearing a t-shirt now. But when I go out at night, like I like to look good. And I like to wear clothes that fit. And like, I like to you know, um, look stylish. Mm-hmm. And I would like go do my stand-up shows in like my t-shirt and hoodie. Cause like, that was the cool thing. And then mm-hmm. I'd go home and change and then go out with my friends. Huh. So like, I, I still remember the day where I was like, no, I'm going to go on stage the way that I like to dress. And it's like, 
people made fun of me. My buddies made fun of me at first. And then it's like, literally, like, I'm the guy who's always going to be wearing a jacket in the pocket square on stage. And like, last night I did a show at, at the Laugh Factory and I was the only one wearing a jacket, you know, and it was like, Dane Cook was there. And like, all these comics were just like, you know, the rock star comics wearing t-shirts and whatever. But like, once you, but that's what makes you feel comfortable and that's what makes you own the stage, right? So, mm-hmm. Even if I am performing in like Allentown, Pennsylvania, which I had a show last week there, I'm still going to dress nice like that because mm-hmm. it's like, it's just, I don't know. It's just, also, I just feel like there's a lack of respect for the craft when you mm-hmm. just like wear your, you know, ripped t-shirt and just get on stage. Well, but I wonder like, what yeah. that signifies for an audience. I mean, I wonder if there's a sense of like, when you're wearing the ripped t-shirt and the hoodie or whatever, that like, there's a sense of like, oh, this guy just like stumbled out of bed and like, he's going to just like tell it like it is because yeah he's a he doesn't, bad boy he, yeah he doesn't give a shit <laughs> he doesn't um, give a fuck <laughs> right but but on the flip side it's like i don't know what it signifies if you're dressed nice on stage like what i would take from that visually but but i'm sure there's there's something else that happens there too i'm sure i think so i think it i think right away it'll command a, some sort of authority mm-hmm. yeah i think so i think especially when you stand out from the other people and it's funny because like everyone always thinks like Everyone thinks I'm gay when I'm on stage until I do my bit about I'm not gay. <laughs> but I feel, like uh, that, I, feel like that, I feel like that's a subset of comedian because I just, uh, this guy started following me, Alex Edelman. Do you know yeah, him? Alex Edelman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He started following me on Twitter and, like, I, and I thought he was gay. And then like, I was like, oh, wait, I don't think he is gay. But it's like, I think that's like a subset of comedians now where it's like, they seem kind of gay, but they're not gay. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but especially if you like dress like, I mean, this is a dated word, but if you dress like metrosexual, uh-huh. um, you know, it it seems like it's more acceptable to do it at a bar or off stage. But if you see a comedian who's dressed really nice, you automatically assume, assume that he's gay. It's, it's a mm-hmm. weird thing. I think it's, again, just because like most of them are dressed like they don't give a fuck. And it's funny because I am gay, but I don't think I dress that nice. So it's like, you know, it's very complex. Um, But I'm curious, like with the, I'm thinking now about like ego and self-esteem and chefs and comedians and like the, the, like the chef that you were talking about who didn't want to have his restaurant talked about on TV, like the the sort of like the kind of person who does it for the love of doing it Mm. versus the kind of person who wants to be in the limelight. And Mm. it feels like with comedy, it's like, you can't be too much of like a a climber because then then people will see right through that. But on the flip side, it's like, there are plenty of comedians. Like, I mean, Jay Leno just came to mind immediately, but like who like are absolutely like cutthroat killers and like climbing their way up to the top. And so I'm curious for you, like, you know, how do you negotiate the love of doing it uh, just for the sake of doing it versus like trying to get ahead and trying to build right. a career? I think I have a healthy balance. I think mm-hmm. I've come to a healthy balance. And I think that I've, I have friends who are very committed to the craft. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm never leaving New York because this is where real standup lives. Mm-hmm. And they're just like languishing in the back of the comedy cellar. <laughs> And, you know, it's like, there's something very romantic about that and whatnot. But I also like, I also feel like I want to reach as many people as I can. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I don't want to be famous to like, you know, just get accolades and da 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 da. But like, I do want to reach as many people as I can. Like, I think mm-hmm. that's, that's like, I don't want to be like a super niche, you know, even in the food thing, like in, in this food show, the Food Network thing, like, um, I don't know. I wanted to have, I've always wanted to do things that have mass appeal. And I know that that's mm-hmm. not cool to say, but I think that's an interesting talent unto its, unto its, itself. Sure. 
Absolutely. I mean, I look at Alex Bernicelli, uh, and I think like, wow, what a cool chef that like, she's got so much respect in the food world. I mean, yeah. she's the daughter of like a legendary cookbook editor. She's a chef at butter and like people really respect her. Um, but she's also like on the food network and like very accessible and like, she's beloved, like around the country. It's like, you know, wherever totally. she goes in America, she, people will see her and know her from chopped, but like, she can be in New York, she can be in LA, she could be in Kansas. Like, I just think there's something really cool about her position in the food world. 100%. Whereas I feel like, like, I feel like Ruth Reichel, who I adore and who's been on this podcast, it's like, you know, she's beloved in like, you know, New York and LA and maybe in some, some cities around the country, but it's not quite the same thing. You know, there's like yeah. a different different audience for her agreed agreed and like I, yeah i mean i mean look if i had to pick my type of like the, i don't necessarily want to be like a guy fieri like because i do <laughs> want to have some of that respect within the industry is like within like the you know within my peers or whatever mm-hmm. um you know and i don't necessarily want to be at uh, I, I don't know not to say that i don't want to be anthony bourdain or whatever but like that to me he was like a little too niche uh, mm-hmm. within his like kind of journalistic intelligentsia vibe um but yeah alex she's a she's a great example of like someone who can straddle those two worlds which i think is like something that's that's exactly it like i want to be able to straddle both worlds i want to be able to go and do a a show in iowa Mm -hmm. and do just as well as i could do in fucking silver lake you know and there's a real skill in that i mean it's like uh robin williams or like george carlin or like comedians who are just like you know, it seems to me like just were deeply loved um, around the country. Uh, right. But I'm curious, like, who were your role models as as comedian, as growing up as a comedian or wanting to start your career as a comedian? I mean, I think it was the guys on SNL growing up, like uh-huh. Chris Farley and Adam Sandler, like that generation. Like, no one really made ever made me laugh that hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so these like big physical comics, which is funny because I don't really my comic is like my comedy is like somewhat physical, but not crazy physical. Um, and then like my food idols were like all from the food network back then, you know? Yeah. So it was, you know, there's a chapter about Mario Batali in my book, but uh-huh. I thought, I still think he had like the best food, Molto Mario oh, was like the best hundred percent. You and I have so many similarities. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> like we both like almost went to medical school and we both were in New York at the same time when we both like watched Molto Mario and like, yeah. I'm so sad about like how horrible he t- turned out to be and just like the things that he did um but i I learned so much watching that show i mean yeah it was was insane i i had laurie woolliver on my podcast and she was anthony bourdain's assistant who just wrote a bunch of books about him but before that she she was mario's assistant and i was like i talked about that and i was like oh that that show is incredible he would make like four dishes at once and she's like oh well he didn't really he had like a team of like 20 people that were like making all of it at the same because he made it look like he was making like pasta and dessert and like and i was like how is he doing this it right still, it was still incredible um so are you in terms of your cooking um what are like your go-to things that you like to make Ooh, i probably stick to italian honestly because that's the easiest i i had this it's funny i had this moment of pride once where i was like i'm persian and i don't know how to cook any persian food i'm mm-hmm. going to learn how to cook persian and I tried to make like one thing and it takes like, takes like three days of like <laughs> prep and getting ready. And I was like, this is like grandma food. This is like, you have to be a grandma <laughs> in Iran mm-hmm. with nothing else to do except to, you know, to prep food for a family of 12. So I, I settled on Italian, like, you know, so I have all the, all the good Italian staples and then I can just kind of riff from there, but I will use anchovies and as many things as I can. Oh, yeah, Sure. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll whip up pastas here and there. My new fun thing that I do is to, uh, make, 
uh, chocolate souffles uh, oh. for dessert with oh. uh, with the guests, with whoever is uh, ah, over for dinner. That's fun. You have them whip the egg whites and yeah, it's very fun and it's very easy to do. Like uh, with you know, just have these little ramekins mm -hmm. and one egg per souffle. Just separate them. It's yeah. so easy. It's like people make it seem really complicated. But, this is your TikTok uh, video. You got to do a TikTok. This is what everyone's doing God, now. I know. No, we're too old. Um, well, Dan, so every episode starts with what did you have for lunch, but it ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? Ooh, interesting question. I actually don't know what I'm having for dinner tonight. Um, okay. But I how will. Does, how does that make you feel? How does that make me feel? I'm just no, that's okay. I'm very, I can, I can wait <laughs> till the last minute and, uh, yeah. and, uh, but it might be, honestly, it might be, a, it, it's one, I'm going to Mexico on Thursday, so I haven't filled up my fridge. So I'm probably just going to, I'm probably just going to order in. And my Sunday night guilty pleasure is, uh, from Tasty Noodle House, which is a Chinese mm -hmm. restaurant on South Beverly in LA. They're, um, Crescent, sorry. They have something called Hunan lamb. Okay. Oh my God. It's like this lamb, like chopped lamb with like Sichuan peppers and over oh. rice. It's just like I can just like melt into my couch and have that all day, all night. And it's just the best. That sounds so good. We, have, we, we get Pine and Crane where we are because we're on closer to like Silver Lake and that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, um, but we don't best. have a great like Sichuan or Hunan place near us. And I'm jealous of that. Yeah, this is like Pine and Crane is cool. Pine and Crane is like I love it. Don't get me wrong, but you know it's like it's like good hipster Chinese. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Oh, fired. <laughs> I think it's delicious. I, I just no. I think, I think it's, it's like, delicious. It's, Look, it's very I, fresh tasting, which I appreciate. It's like a whole lot. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I think oh I think the hipsterification of food is fantastic. I <laughs> love not, it. What makes it hipster? I don't. I honestly don't think it's. I think well, the people who go there might be hipsters, but the food itself, if you saw it on a plate and you didn't know where it came from, you would never think that was hipster food in a million years. Here's the thing. What I what I'm calling the hipsterification of food, yeah. a lot of in a lot of ways, is taking food back to how it used to taste. For example, uh -huh. like there's like hipster restaurants in Texas that are cooking barbecue the way barbecue, you know, with like good, good cows and like, you know, meat that's been treated <laughs> <Good> nicely. <laughs> not, not misbehaved cows, the good ones. Yeah, <laughs> the good ones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Frank Franklin, are you talking about like Franklin barbecue? Like that, that those guys seem kind of like hipsters. That yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like, what is he doing? He's like making it the way they probably made it there a hundred years ago, right? I get what you're saying. So it's like, it's not like an insult to the food. It's more about the culture of like. Exactly. Like, no, like, I'm, not, quote, I'm not at all insulting the food. In yeah, fact, yeah. yeah. But it's funny, though. I was just in Philadelphia and yeah. I was with uh, my buddy and we always get cheesesteaks and we get the grimy cheesesteaks. Okay. And I was like, let's try some hipster cheesesteaks. Yeah. And we found the place that's using the, you know, the nice sweet cows that have been uh -huh. giving baths. Sure. Uh -huh. And it tasted awful. Like there, that you need the griminess for a good uh, cheesesteak. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. You don't want like clean, no. properly made like sliced steak on a cheesesteak. That's no. a good point. It's like organic ketchup. Like it's never going to be as good as Heinz. I have one final question for you that I forgot to ask you, but the, in all our parallels, there's another parallel that I think is true. Is that I think we go to the same gym or we had gone to the same gym and seen each other there. Um, but I want to ask you about like staying in shape mm -hmm. and like eating what you want to eat, because it seems like I'm looking at you right now and you're in a room that has an exercise bike behind you or a treadmill. <laughs> I really can't tell what it is, but it's an exercise, do, bike. <laughs> it's an exercise bike. But how do you personally like strike a balance between eating all this delicious food and then trying to stay in shape? 
So I don't go to the gym anymore um, post-pandemic. Yeah, and I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen you there, but... Yeah. yeah, but what happened is actually the best thing that could have happened to me was once the pandemic hit and I started drinking a lot like everyone did. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to die if I keep this up. So I just started hiking. There's, mm -hmm. a, there's a little hill, you know, it's not run in, but it's right next to it, that is uh, right outside here. And every morning it became this compulsion of like, mm -hmm. let me just get to the top and get to the bottom. Mm -hmm. So basically every morning I was doing a four and a half mile hike. Nice. And I ended up like in better shape than I've ever been. And I injured my foot, so I started doing the bike. But honestly, like uh, I, I, I consistently will do like an, uh, 45 minutes to an hour of something, even mm -hmm. if it's just like walking around and like taking calls. Mm -hmm. So I'm like constantly kind of moving and doing like very actionable, easy things. Like I'm not running, I'm not, you know, yeah. sprinting, I'm not doing high interval training, but as long as you do something simple every day yeah. that is doable, I think that's like the secret to me for staying in shape. Whenever I try to do too much, it never works. But what about diet? Like, are you, do you watch what you eat during the day? Like, do you skip lunch? Do you do smoothies? Do you do juices? Yeah, diet-wise, it's funny. I, I'd say I'm like, at home, I'm mostly vegetarian. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the morning, I'll, I'll either skip breakfast and just have coffee, or I will have like a, a, night, a big smoothie that I make, mm -hmm. uh, frozen blueberries, bananas, cinnamon, uh -huh. chia seeds. Um, but then when it comes to like dinner, like all bets are off. I will eat what I want. I will drink mm -hmm. what I want. Um, I love wine. I have yeah. no guilt around it. Um, I feel like this is like a new LA, like kind of, I think everything you were describing, I have like 20 different friends in LA who are like subscribed to this, which is like, you know, don't eat big, don't eat a lot during the day, eat whatever you want at night and then like walk a lot or exercise like, yeah. you know, casually during the day. So this is a good fitness program that I might, because Craig is going to kill me because like I keep, I, I do still belong to the gym, but I haven't been in like months because of Delta. When Delta hit, I was like, well, I can't go back. I rejoined when the vaccine came. And then I went for like two weeks and then Delta came and I stopped going. So, I mean, who um, wants to wear an N95 on the treadmill? Like, no, it's I awful. Can't. That's it's... a really good point. Yeah. All right. I'll cancel it tomorrow. <laughs> you encouraged but, me. But yeah, during the day, if I'm at home, lunch wise, I literally have a bag of arugula. Uh -huh. Like speaking of things that you would eat yourself and never give to guests, I yeah. literally just take a handful of arugula, put it on a plate, olive oil, lemon, and then like I'll just throw like pickles in there <laughs> and like anchovies and uh -huh. like. Uh, it's just like this garbage can, you know, just like garbage Valid. salad. And it's great. It's fine. Um, that sounds really good. Yeah. But dinner is where I, I'll go hard on dinner, but even then I'm not like, I'm not gorging, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I can't really drink spirits anymore. Oh, interesting. Why? What happens? I'm just never, I'm not going to sleep well. I will, I will yeah. feel shitty the next day. I can drink as much wine as I want. I can drink like a bottle and a half of wine. And I'll be fine uh -huh. the next day. Interesting. Yeah. But we just went to a friend's house for dinner and they gave us like boozy cocktails and I, I did feel really crappy the next day. So yeah. Cool. One Negroni and I'm done the next day. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I love it. As we get older, we're also probably the same age. So we have a lot of parallels, but Dan, thank you so much for, uh, doing the podcast this was really fun we had some really good talk like yeah we had thanks some good so much content in here yeah it's been and, so it's been so amazing to see uh your career like from the yeah. sidelines just seeing like <laughs> like rise rise uh, rise in the ranks every year and uh oh, i'm nice. very happy for you because again we both started out in the coffee shop at the same time well ditto yeah that coffee shop had some magic to it so yeah congratulations yeah. on all your stuff i can't wait to watch your show and read your book 
Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, Dan. Well, thanks a lot. All right. Take care.